Well, good morning. For those of y'all who may not know me, my name is Trey Corey. I'm the college pastor here at our Southwood campus, and uh, I'm uh, excited to get to be with you guys here in Maine service this morning. We're going to be continuing on in our series, the book of James. And so if you'll open your Bibles, James chapter two, that's where we will be this morning. As you guys turn there, let me give you guys a little bit more information about myself. If you guys don't know me at all, I'm a man that is a man of principle, a man that operates on a consistent basis by a series of principles that I rarely ever veer from. A series of principles or a series of preferences, really things that I prefer, favorites that I have that really dominate many of the decisions I make on a daily basis. At the top of that list really is a love affair with Dr. Pepper. All right. Uh, for me, I will prefer and select Dr. Pepper over any other drink option at any other time. And if it weren't for the need to hydrate with water, I would probably live off of Dr. Pepper. All right. I love it. Uh, my wife will refer to my relationship with Dr. Pepper as addiction. I prefer to call it consistent enjoyment, right? Uh, I will choose Dr. Pepper all the time. All right. Also for me, uh, although they've won one playoff game in the last 15 years, I will always prefer my beloved Dallas Cowboys to any other football team, all right? Amen, praise the Lord, right? Now, they're not playing this Sunday, which probably means there won't be disappointment in our home, but nonetheless, I love the Dallas Cowboys. Also for me, I prefer Chipotle over Freebirds, all right? (laughs) Wow. Our church is just splitting down the seams, right? Um, I prefer Ghirardelli over Godiva chocolate, all right? And maybe most controversial of all of them, I prefer PC over Mac, all right? I'm kind of an old school... (laughs) Blake's never going to let me preach again, all right? It's been two minutes and I've split everybody down the seams, right? I'm kind of old school, but I I still prefer PC over Mac. Now, I I feel like Apple is like a virus that works its way into the very small things known as the iPod, the iPhone, and then it escalates its relationship with you to the iPad before it finally takes over all of your computing uh, desires with the Mac laptop, right? It's kind of how Apple, I think, works, but we've kind of still held the line. We're still a PC family, all right? Now, for me personally, I think my set of preferences reveal a sophisticated palate and a man of discernment, all right? I don't know how you guys feel about your own set of preferences. I'm sure you champion them, I'm sure you love them, and I'm sure you operate by them on a very consistent basis. We all have preferences, whether it's sports or foods or drinks or restaurants. We all have the things that we favor, the things that we prefer over other options, And it's interesting, though, this very human tendency to favoritism or toward preference that when it's foods and restaurants and sports teams, although we may laugh and we may bicker, ultimately it's innocent and it's harmless, usually, right? And yet when that same preference, that same tendency to prefer or to favor something gets applied to persons, it begins to change the very tenor and the very attitude by which it works. And yet, I'd say in the same way that we have preferences for all kinds of things, We also have preferences when it comes to persons, right? You have a certain uh, musician that you may like to listen to. You may even have a certain pastor you most like to listen to. You may also have a certain person who you go to religiously to cut your hair because you wouldn't trust your masterpiece like mine to anyone's hands, right? We have preferences with even people, right? It doesn't matter whether it's waiters or restaurants or preachers or musicians, whether it's things or people, we operate by a set of preferences, It's interesting, though, as we get into James chapter 2 this morning, I think James has come right at that very normative tendency to make preferences and to play favorites. And ultimately, I think what he's going to say is that there are times when we are not allowed to have preferences 
In a sense, when preferences are not your prerogative, when you are not free to play favorites. In fact, James is going to get really worked up, really worked up this morning in James chapter 2, really uh, in light of something that we do all the time. In fact, I think really what James chapter 2 verses 1 to 13 will do is go right at the primary obstacle that laid in the way of his own audience's ability to fulfill much of what we talked about last week. If you guys remember back to James chapter 1 verse 27, this is where Blake ended with us last week. And James said this, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. So we talked a lot about last week the community ministries that we're a part of, the compassion and mercy ministries that we're a part of here in our church and in our community. And ultimately, I think what chapter 2 verses 1 to 13 is all about is a rebuttal as James realizes there's a primary obstacle in his audience's way before they can fulfill chapter 1 verse 27. There's no way they will care for orphans and they will care for widows if they continue to operate by a normal human tendency, and that is the tendency of preference and favoritism. So James is going to come right at this topic this morning, this topic of favoritism, of preferential treatment, and he's going to come right at it, and he's going to get really worked up because there's five primary reasons he's going to call you and I to root this out of our life. Five primary reasons why he's going to see this as absolutely destructive in our lives, in the church life, and even in the community at large. And yet it's so normative to us in the way that we operate, whether it's people, or whether it's things, or whether it's sports teams. Ultimately, begin with me, if you will, in verse 1, and notice that James says, chapter 2, verse 1, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Beginning in verse 1, I think Peter or James is going to highlight one primary thing for us, and that's this. That when you and I operate by favoritism, when you and I make preferences regarding persons, one of the first things that James will recognize is that it can confuse the gospel message. That ultimately, when you and I live by a kind of favoritism that exists in our lives of persons, that very tendency can confuse the very reality and the very nature of the gospel. Notice he says in verse 1, you cannot hold your faith along with an attitude of favoritism. These two things you cannot hold together. You can try, but when you hold them together, they are absolutely contradictory to one another because your tendency to favor will confuse the very faith in the gospel that you hold in the other hand. You cannot put these things together. Why is that? Why is favoritism so negative and so destructive in James's mind? I think ultimately for James, as we walk through this passage this morning, we're going to see that James sees favoritism as the extension of glory and honor to some, and then the withholding of glory and honor to others. And I think James is going to go even further and to say that to others that do not get glory and honor, it's not just the withholding of glory and honor, but it's the extension of shame as well. So favoritism is the granting of honor to one party while it is the granting of shame to another party. And what James will say as he begins in verse 1 is this, that faith and that kind of practice are absolutely contradictory to one another. That ultimately what grace is, what the gospel is, the faith that we've believed in in terms of what Jesus has done is so diametrically opposed to that kind of tendency. It is Jesus in his death and his great grace that has been extended to you and I that he extends his favor to all. To any that would have need, to any that would respond to it, he extends his favor to all. He has no distinction, he has no preferential treatment toward any. He extends his grace to any who would receive it. And that is so different than ultimately what favoritism does. 
Faith and favoritism do not go together, much like for me, the very concept of a fun run. (laughs) Complete oxymoron for me, right? There's nothing fun at all about a run. And the fact that some charities try to make you not only pay for this, but then come exercise as well is a complete travesty to me, all right? If you want my money, ask me. Don't make me go exercise too, all right? Absolutely, for me, these things don't go together. In fact, I really appreciate, well, you'll get some marketing for this coming up, but Youth Impact has something coming up in November called a Rebel Run, all right? They're going to have their own charity fun run, but they don't call it a fun run, they call it a Rebel Run. Because they're upright, clear with everyone from the very outset that there will be obstacles, there will be mud, there will be pain, it will be difficult, all right? There's nothing fun about this, but it'll be incredibly rewarding, so you should come, all right? Look for that marketing later on, all right? But again, for me, fun run as a concept, these two ideas, they don't fit together in the same way. James is saying that faith and favoritism do not go together. In a sense, they are incongruent with one another. They do not fit together. Secondly, it's fascinating that James will describe Jesus Christ here in verse 1 as the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Why the addition of this concept of glorious right here in verse 1? I think it's fascinating. I think it's no coincidental uh, reality that James is highlighting that Jesus Christ is one of glory. But not just that he is one to be described by glory, but he is one who hands glory out. It's fascinating, really. I think what favoritism does is it it undermines the very message of the entirety of our Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Something that is absolutely so normative to you and I and how we operate and how we think. And yet I think what favoritism does is it undermines a message that is all the way in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. All the way back in Genesis, back in the garden, God creates humanity. He makes humanity in his image and therefore all of humanity is inherently bestowed with glory. The fact that all of humanity has been created in God's image entails and implies that all of humanity is glorious. And and at the fall, when sin entered into the world and it was like graffiti over the very glory of humanity and covered up that inherent glory and value and honor, then Jesus Christ comes later on in our New Testament and he lays his life down for you and I. Because we've fallen and we need to be reconciled with God. Our relationship with him has been separate. And so Jesus comes and he lays his life down for you and I. To not only reconcile us with our creator, but even more, to come and begin to restore the glory that was ours inherently, that has been graffitied over. And when Jesus lays his life down, when he invites us into a relationship with him, he's not just saying, hey, I want to get you out of jail. I'm not just trying to get you out of hell. That ultimately what I'm trying to do in your life is, is reconcile you to me so that I can begin a work in your life, so that I can restore into you the very glory that I gave you at creation itself. And what favoritism does is it begins to undermine the very things that we see at creation and the very things that we see at the cross. And that favoritism is operating in a completely different kind of way. Paul will say in Colossians chapter 3, Verse 11, he says, a renewal is occurring within the church in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man. But Christ is all and in all. That ultimately, in terms of what Jesus Christ is doing within the world today, that he's extending his grace and his kindness to any who would receive it, free and slave, Greek and Jew, any and all, without distinction. And what favoritism does is an extending of glory and honor with all kinds of distinctions. What favoritism does is run completely contrary to the very thing that we see Jesus doing in the gospel. The very message of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation that we are glorious because we were created in his image 
and that he's working to restore that glory in our lives. And so as we walk in favoritism, it is so incongruent with faith. These two things do not fit together. Secondly, one of the things we're going to see as we move on is that in verses 2 to 4, we're going to see that not just that favoritism leads to a confusion of the gospel message, but secondly, that favoritism will lead to a cruelty to the vulnerable. That favoritism will lead to a cruelty to the vulnerable. Look with me, if you will, verses 2 to 4. James will say that for if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, Ultimately, James will begin to unfold for us a scenario here. Commentators have discussed whether this is in the actual worship assembly of the church or whether this was potentially within a judicial meeting of the church as there was an agreement or a conflict. Either way, this is a situation within the very church community, a church that was supposed to be all rallied around the faith and the gospel. And this church is operating probably here not by a hypothetical scenario that James is throwing out. This is probably very likely happening in their midst. It's probably not just hypothetical, really, as he throws it out. And in a sense, we're going to see that there's two parties that will enter in. One that is rich, obviously, dressed in fine clothes with a gold ring, and one that is poor in dirty clothes. And we're going to see it's not just that there are two parties, but we're going to see that the church is going to respond with two different responses to these two parties. Notice verse 3. And you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. (laughs) Two different parties and the church responds with completely different response to the two parties. In fact, James will go on with scathing criticism of them in verse four. And he says, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? He recognizes that in their tendency to prefer and their tendency to have favoritism, that ultimately they're operating and making distinctions with all kinds of evil motives. I was thinking this week, uh, what must this have been like? Uh, I think you and I have run across this scenario all the time. If you've ever been at some point into Home Depot or Lowe's or HEB or Walmart or just some big grocery store and they've rearranged things and you're looking for something maybe that you always know is there but you just can't find it. And so you go find a good part-time employee, young guy maybe, who's there, who's stocking the shelves, and go, hey, I'm, I'm looking for this item. I can't seem to find it. Can you help me? I don't know if you've ever been in that spot, and, and a guy's like, I have no idea where that is. <laughs> good luck, <laughs> right? Or, or hey, it's, I think it's on aisle nine, but I'm not sure. It's just, just kind of over there. <laughs> and so then you kind of wander off a little bit frustrated, still lost, right, uh, with a little bit of direction. But then as you're walking away from the aisle and you're walking away from the interaction, then comes a cute little college girl, comes down the aisle, finds that same part-time young stalker and says, hey, I'm looking for this or that, or maybe it's just a hammer, right? And all of a sudden the stalker drops everything, right? And he's like, yes, I, I think I do know where that is. Come, come with me. Let's go this way. And what was your name? And are you single, right? You know, that's how the conversation goes. Completely, completely different response, right? Well, Why? Why? Is there a potential that the guy has completely different motives as he interacts with me and as he interacts with a young, hopefully single college girl? Heck yes, right? And I think what James is recognizing for the church at large is he's saying that you are granting honor to some based on selfish motives and you're extending shame to others because they can't do anything for you. To those that can do something for you, you'll pay them all kinds of special attention. You'll look them in the eyes. You'll walk them over to their seat. You'll give them the choice seat. But to those who can't do anything for you, you may not even acknowledge them. You may just say, hey, over there, just find something. Good luck, right? And there's a completely different response. 
I was thinking further about that this week and I thought, I think for the poor man who would have walked in in this scenario, I don't think his poverty, I don't think his clothes were really the hardest thing that he ever encountered. I think, uh, not that I've ever experienced it, but I would imagine that being homeless, being hungry, uh, not having clothes or having appropriate provision is incredibly difficult. But I think there's something even more greatly difficult than that. I think the scenario that the poor were walking into was a scenario that was far more difficult than anything their poverty had thrown to them because ultimately they had people making value statements about their worth. Their poverty and their lack of possessions never said to them, hey, you're not worthwhile. You're not worthy of someone's attention. But as the church completely disregarded them because they could not do anything for the church, potentially, in that moment, a statement is made to them of their worth, of their sense of value that was far harder than probably anything their poverty threw them. Poverty and homelessness is some levels external, but the kind of statement of one's self-worth goes to the very core of our identity and who we are and how we feel about ourselves. And I think the harm that the poor were experiencing in this moment was far more difficult than their poverty had ever thrown them. In fact, I had an opportunity to read this summer an incredible book by a lady named Laura Hildenbrand. She wrote uh, Sea Biscuit, if you guys ever uh, caught that either by movie or by book. But she also wrote a book that I got to read through this summer called Unbroken. Fascinating read. If you have time, I'd highly encourage it. But in it, she details the life of a man named uh, Louis Zapparini, who was an Olympic runner who medaled, actually, uh, in the games back in the 30s. Uh, and then he would eventually get drafted for World War II and would be go off and he would be flying on a bomber at one point uh, in an attack plan. The bomber would go down in the open ocean and he would crash and he'd go down. Most of the crew of that bomber would die and yet he and two other guys on that crew would actually survive. And the story really details their experience lost at sea for over 40 days. Over 40 days lost at sea without shelter, without food, without clothing, other than the one item that they were wearing when they crashed. And what's fascinating as the story unfolds is halfway through the book, I'm on day 40 of them being lost at sea. And I'm thinking to myself, what else does this story have to share, right? Where, where else are we going to go from here? Uh, and if you're interested in reading the book, this might be a little bit of a spoiler alert, so apologize, all right? Uh, but eventually these guys will come to the shore of an island. They will have drifted thousands of miles. And they will come to a shore of an island that they're hoping is one of peace, and yet they'll find that it is Japanese-controlled. So they will be immediately arrested and immediately thrown into a prison of war camp. And in that place, they will experience something far more difficult than anything they experience lost at open sea. In fact, Laura Hildenbrand, the author, will speak of their experience, and she says this. But the crash of the Green Hornet, their bomber, had left Louis and Phil in the most desperate physical extremity, without food, water, or shelter. But on the island that they would land on, the guards sought to deprive them of something that had sustained them, even as all else had been lost, their dignity. The self-respect and sense of self-worth, the innermost armament of the soul, lies at the heart of humanness. To be deprived of it is to be dehumanized, to be cleaved from and cast below mankind. Men subjected to dehumanizing treatment experience profound wretchedness and loneliness and find that hope is almost impossible to retain. Without dignity, identity is erased. And in its absence, men are defined not by themselves, but by their captors and the circumstances in which they are forced to live. I think she nails right on the head in these downed soldiers' experience exactly what the poor were experiencing as they walked into the very doors of the church. 
poverty, external struggles were not that difficult compared to the kind of difficulty they faced as men made value statements about them. Extended them not glory that should have been theirs because they were created in God's image, but instead extended them shame because they could not do something for those that were extending the honor. That kind of favoritism leads to a cruelty to the vulnerable that is absolutely, James is absolutely going to condemn. If you and I are going to visit widows and orphans in their distress, if we're going to live out the kind of compassion and mercy ministries that we talked about last week, you and I have to get past the tendency to play favorites and the tendency to have preferences, especially in regard to persons. Not handing out to some person's honor and to others' dishonor. In fact, I want to ask you guys two simple questions this morning uh, along these lines. I want to ask you, not looking at others, but first looking at yourself, I want to ask you this. How do you determine your own self-worth? How is it that you determine your own self-worth? A question that we wrestle with through much of childhood, that we get far more sophisticated in adulthood at not seeming insecure, and yet we still are, right? Still worrying whether we have value, still worrying what people think of us. Then we get into parenthood and then we begin to worry what people think of us because of our kids, right? It just continues on and on and on. I want to ask you this morning, how is it that you determine your self-worth? What is it that you run to? What is it that you assess to be why you're valuable and why you're honorable? Is it your achievements? Is it what you've accomplished? Is it uh, the approval of others and their applause of you? Is it the success of your children and that now they are in a sense your trophy and your sense of worth? Is it your possessions and your stuff? Where is it that you run to and you say, I will hang my sense of worth on this hook? What is it for you? Because I think to the extent that we don't run to what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf to realize that that is where our worth is settled will be the extent to which we will always wrestle with this question. You are valuable because you have been created in God's image without disability, without regard to ethnicity, without regard to accomplishment. You are valuable Because you're his child and he's created you in his image. And he wanted to express that so greatly to you that even when you fell out of a relationship with him, he would send his only son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for your sin so that you could be reconciled with him. And not just reconciled to a relationship so that we could all hold hands and feel good about one another, but so that he could slowly but surely begin to recreate your life and restore to your life the glory that he originally intended. It's an elaborate makeover plan is what he's doing in our lives, right? And if you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ, let me just say, we just stop right here. (laughs) This is the greatest news that you can hear this morning. Whether you fall in the favored category at times or whether you don't, whether you struggle with favoritism or not, you are valuable because God has created you and he loves you and he gave his only son for you. And you will never be able to answer that question and settle that issue in your lives apart from what he has done and what he's said. And I think for all of us, if we cannot appropriately answer the first question, we will never be able to appropriately answer the second question. If you don't realize that your worth was forever settled at what Jesus Christ had done for you, then the rest of life becomes a means by which you look to see how you can up and and exalt your own sense of worth. And by and large, then people and relationships become how can you get something out of those relationships and not what can you give? How can people exalt your sense of self-esteem and not how can you love and encourage and build others up? So I want to ask you, uh, do you deny the glory inherent to others? How is it that you may be in your lives, whether it be individuals or whether it be groups, how are you potentially marring over or covering over the very glory that is due people because they've been created in his image? Is it those that simply cannot pay it back and therefore it's not worthy of your time? 
Is it an individual in your life that comes across your path at work or at school or in the halls, even even here, <laughs> that you know your, your heart just wells up of, oh, can I just walk away or walk around or not have to engage? <laughs> Why is it that there's this sense in all of us that says there are some that are not worthy of us, there are some that are not worthy of honor to be acknowledged and to be loved and to be shown that they're mighty and that they're significant? I think all of us have those people, all of us have those groups, and I want to challenge you, especially as you walk away from this morning, uh, to take some time even this afternoon and go, hey, who is it that I disregard? Is there a group of people that I typically extend shame toward or extend judgment toward? And how can I more differently and far more accurately reflect the kind of glory that they're due because they've been created in God's image? Favoritism causes a divide that gives glory to some and shame to others. That's so contrary to what God is doing through the, throughout these scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. It confuses the gospel message. It leads to a cruelty to the vulnerable. And then thirdly, it leads to a contradiction with God's choice. That when you and I have a tendency to prefer some individuals over another, what we often find happening is that we end up making a choice or a preference that is actually contrary to the very preference God has made. Notice, if you will, verse 5. Notice where James will take us. He says, listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Again, James is saying, hey, as you honor the rich, realizing you, realize you are making a choice and a preference that is actually contrary to the choice that God has made. You chose the rich and yet God chose the poor. You made a choice based on what you see in this current culture and yet God chose based on what he sees in a culture and a kingdom that is to come. You see based on simply external variables and God sees far beyond that. And ultimately, as you and I have a tendency to prefer and a tendency to favoritism, what we begin to find is that it doesn't just land as contrary with the choice of God. It doesn't land as just opposed to God, that we're squared off, but it also lands us in a line with a group of people that we agree with that we ought to think twice about. Notice what he says in verses six and seven. But you've dishonored the poor man, Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? James's point is, look, you've made a choice that's contrary to the choice of God. You've gone in a direction that is completely contrary to the movement and the direction of God. And second of all, you've landed in line with a group of people that you may not want to be in line with, right? These are men and women who are absolutely dishonoring you. They're the ones pulling you into court to dishonor you. Second of all, they're actually dishonoring God himself as well. And so why are you in line with this kind of group of people? Remind me, if you've ever been on Facebook and you're going through your news feed and you go, you see someone who posts something, you see someone who posts a link and you just like it. Then you kind of go back later and you think, hey, I'm curious, what are people saying about it? Who else is liking it? And you kind of expand it out and you realize, oh, <laughs> I liked something with a bunch of people that I don't think I really want to be aligned with. Maybe I should back up just a little bit, Right. You're like, oh my goodness. It's not so much who you're opposed with that would cause you to pause, but sometimes who you're in line with that causes you to pause. And so James says, look, that as you choose the rich over the poor, you're making a choice that is completely contrary to how God sees the world and how he extends his love. And you're landing in line with a group of people that you do not want to be in line with. This, this is foolishness. And so knock it off. Fourth thing I think we begin to see is that we get aligned with a group of people, but then also fourthly, verses 8 to 11, that really the other reason why James is worked up about this tendency to favoritism is this, that it leads to a collapse of the law of love. Notice verse 8. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, 
according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. So James comes right to the idea that, hey, that ultimately this whole concept of favoritism really is contradictory with the very law of love that's been extended to you. The royal law, the law of the King Jesus himself. The law that we even see mentioned even back in Leviticus where we're called to love your neighbor as yourself. And ultimately what James is trying to highlight for you and I is that when we fail at this thing called favoritism, that when we choose to do it, ultimately we're falling short and it's ultimately a problem of love. That when you and I extend honor to some and shame to others, that we are failing in our ability to love rightly. That ultimately the ability to love neighbors as ourselves, to love without distinction, that is the bullseye, that is the goal. And to fall short of it, as he'll say in verse 9, is this. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. That ultimately the human tendency toward playing favorites and toward making preferences as it regards persons is not neutral at all. It confuses the gospel message. It is a failure to love rightly. And it lands us as transgressors of the entirety of the law. That this is an aspect of actual sin, even though it is so normative to how you and I operate at times. So James wants to get our attention. That when we operate in this kind of way, we are failing to love rightly. And I thought if you were to open up 1 Corinthians 13 later this afternoon and you were to take love out and put favoritism in, how absolutely contrary favoritism would be from what 1 Corinthians 13 is talking about. Favoritism and love are contrary to one another. And so when we live with partiality, we are living not according to the law of God and not according to the command to love. 1 Corinthians 13 could not run more contrary to what favoritism does and how it operates in our lives. It's insidious. It's sinful. It confuses the gospel message. It leads to cruelty to the vulnerable. It leads to a collapse of the law of love. And then lastly, what I want you guys to see is it also leads to condemnation and judgment. Verses 12 and 13. The last thing that we'll see this morning, really kind of begin to set up even for next week, is that the human tendency, as normative as it is, to play favorites and to make preferences as it regards persons will lead to you and I a kind of experience of condemnation and judgment. Notice what he says in verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Verse 12 has always struck me as so fascinating. How are you and I to be judged by the law of liberty? How does that even work? I thought liberty was the absence of coercion, the absence of constraint, freedom to do whatever we want without consequence, without constraint, right? Well, I don't think that's really an accurate sense of freedom, although that's much of what we think in America, right? The freedom is the ability to do your own thing, to make your own future, to make your own lot in life. And yet he's going to say here that the law of liberty is what will judge you and I. James is speaking to believers who he's calling to extend honor to all people, rich and poor. And he says, Speak and act in the present in light of a future day of judgment that's coming. A judgment that you will be judged according to the law of liberty. What an interesting seeming oxymoron, right? How can you be judged by liberty? It's fascinating because I think ultimately what we're going to begin to see, and we'll look at this much more extensively next week, is that you and I, if we know Jesus Christ, we will also face a judgment that is to come. A judgment that is, does not determine heaven and hell, but a judgment that determines something different. Eternal rewards. A judgment that we will come under on the basis of works, even for the believer in Jesus Christ, but not a judgment that determines heaven and hell. 
after Blake will hit this all the more extensively as we look at chapter 2, verses 14 to 26 next week, one of the most thorny passages in the book of James, one of the most challenging in the entirety of the New Testament, yet one of the most fun to really dive into and to jump into. And he'll look at this concept extensively next week, and I'm hopefully just trying to set the stage that a judgment is coming for believers, which we will be evaluated on the basis of how we lived, which is why James will say, so speak and so act as though you will be judged. In fact, that same concept of judgment of the believer comes up even in chapter 3, verse 1, which for me always bothers me, all right? Um, James says, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. If the judgment in chapter 3 is the same as in chapter 2 and the judgment determines heaven and hell, guess what, guys? I'm done. (laughs) See you guys, right? There's just too much at stake if how I teach will determine whether I get in heaven and hell. I think I'll pass and I'll think I'll find another job. (laughs) It's just way too much at stake if that's what James is talking about. I don't think James is talking about a judgment of the teacher that will determine heaven and hell. I think he's talking about a judgment of the believer who is teaching in this case. It will be evaluated on how he's taught, whether he's honored the Lord as he taught, whether he depended on the Lord as he taught. That ultimately, James is beginning to speak of a judgment that is to come for the believer that is to be judged by works, but it does not determine heaven and hell. We're going to look at this extensively next week as we get into the second half of chapter 2, but I think it's huge as we begin to realize really the fifth reason why James wants to highlight the real destructive nature of favoritism is that it will land you and I in judgment and a judgment that will not go well. All right, James will say that you and I will all be judged, but lastly, I think he'll say also that we will be judged on a curve. Notice verse 13. He says, For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Basically, he says this, that if you're one who extends honor to those that can do something for you and shame to those that can't do anything for you, you're not one of mercy. You're not one of compassion. You're not a person who will be able to fulfill what I just called you to in chapter 1, verse 27. And even more, you should be alerted that a judgment is coming and it will not go well. Because if you have not shown mercy to others, then God will be less inclined to show mercy to you as he judges you. It will be a stricter judgment. It will be a harder judgment. And yet, if you are one who has shown mercy, if you've shown kindness and love to all without distinction, then James says, don't worry. Because mercy will triumph over judgment. I will judge you on a curve and you'll have nothing to worry. That is how significant and how strong this issue is for James because it's so vital. You and I have preferences and we play favorites and it's absolutely normative for how you and I think, how you and I operate, foods, restaurants, sports teams, and even persons. And yet there are times when preference is not your prerogative, when you're not free to play favorites. And James wants to startle us and he wants to grab our attention because this issue is so dominant. I want to end with two basic questions for you in terms of application. Who can you notice and value this week? As you look at your life, as you look at the people in the spheres that you step in, who is it that you can notice, you can acknowledge, you can look at them in the eyes, you can value and you can encourage this week? Who is that? Is it a group of people? Is it an individual? I don't know. It's a great place to wrestle and go, hey, not just, hey, who am I not appropriately extending honor to, but who can I extend honor to this week? Who is it that I can move towards with compassion and with mercy? Second of all, who can I serve this week? James will say, so speak and so act. Not just with your words as you acknowledge and as you value people, but even with your body, with your hands, with your feet. Who can you go and who can you serve? Who can you extend honor to and value and service to even if they cannot pay you back at all? 
For James's church, those kinds of individuals were an interruption and a problem that they wanted to avoid and, and skirt around. And James says, you've missed the entirety point of the gospel because if Jesus had done that, we'd all be skirted around. We all would be on the sidelines. And that's not what Jesus did at all for us. They extended to you and I love and to grace. And he calls you and I to go and to do the same. As we step into our church, as we step into our community, as we step into our workplace this week, that's my prayer for you guys. Let me pray for us. Father God, I give you great thanks that even when we were enemies of you, you looked upon us with love. That even when we were hostile, even when we were resistant and hard-hearted, you were patient with us. Even when we had nothing to merit glory, you extended honor and glory to us because you loved us and you cared for us. Father, I pray that you allow us to see people differently. You allow us to see people through your eyes, through your word, that says that all are inherently glorious because you have created them and you've moved to reconcile them and you've offered to them all a free gift of eternal life and the forgiveness of their sins so that they could be restored to the kind of glory that you originally intended when you created all of humanity. Father, we do await for that day that you will restore all of creation and even humanity to the glory that you originally intended. And as we wait on that day, Lord, I pray that you allow us to provide a mini preview and a little trailer to that coming attraction, to that coming picture in the little small circles that we live in as we extend honor to those that our culture would overlook and to disregard. Might you give us hearts of compassion. Might you give us eyes of mercy to see and to respond as you have and as you would call us, Lord. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your son and by your spirit. Amen. You guys have a great Sunday afternoon. We'll see you guys next week.